Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. John Schmelk, Lance Meadow with you. A little bit later on in the show, we'll talk to Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus to break down the draft prospects. Then we'll talk to Michigan reporter Isaiah Hole. He is the publisher of the Wolverines Wire to break down some of the prospects Coming out of Michigan, a very busy show, but first, Lance, let's talk about what just happened, and that is the Joe Judge conference call with the media. It's the first time we've heard from Coach Judge since the NFL Combine. Uh, Obviously, this is when players would have been reporting, so we would have gotten him at some point last week. That hasn't happened, so the Giants made him available to the media today, and and after, you know, two days after hearing from Dave Gettleman, and uh, Kevin Abrams, it was good to hear from Joe Judge. Yeah, it was. It was just nice to get his perspective, especially since he is a first-time NFL head coach. So, John, this is not necessarily the first time him going through perhaps an offseason like this, but it's the first time in general that he is going to be running an NFL team and going through the ebbs and flows of the offseason. So I think it was interesting to get his perspective. Everybody's in the same boat, which is what he echoed, and I think if you ask any head coach, they'd say the same thing. But Joe Judge hasn't installed the system. Neither has his staff. So I think that's a little bit more challenging for the Giants as opposed to some of the established teams. However, he was asked that question, and he didn't think it was necessarily that much of a disadvantage that it puts him and his staff in because from his perspective, he said, listen, there's such a high turnover rate in the NFL where players come and go and you're always bringing in new faces that he said, listen, the other teams in this division, for example, Doug Peterson and the Eagles, which is the only team that has stayed as is in terms of the coaching staff, they're still going to have to account for new faces. For example, Darius Slate came in at the cornerback position. So, I mean, I understood where he was coming from from that standpoint, but I still think with that being said, it's still going to be quite the undertaking for him and his staff to get to know these players, considering they haven't had any face-to-face meetings, nor have they had an opportunity to get out on the field altogether. 100% with you, Lance, and I guess let's talk about this that portion of this first. Then we'll get to some of the things Joe Judge said about the NFL drafts and the and the prospects and, and kind of what his thinking is. He kind of talked about how they've have different calendars. He he kind of color coded them based on how the off season's going to go, and that'll change their the way they teach, how they teach, what they teach at what time, and how quickly they'll bring the players along based on what the health situation in the country allows in terms of, you know, getting people together, uh, doing stuff in person. And they have a lot of different plans in the cupboard, depending on what the scheduling ends up being here with the offseason programs and training camp and stuff like that. Which is a positive because it's a fluid situation, John. So right now they're operating with an unknown calendar, and I think that's good for any team to say, hey, if things get started in June, this is how we operate. If things don't get started till August, this is how we operate. He was also asked related to the calendar, interestingly, John, because he was in the NFL when the 2011 lockout occurred. He was with the New England Patriots, but the key difference that he emphasized is at least in the 2011 lockout, You could have your quarterback get his wide receivers together. They could go to a local field or a local high school, and they could actually work out. The difference now is you can't have positional groups break into smaller groups because nobody could go to a gym or a field. So that's the bigger challenge now, at least in the lockout, even though you didn't have the players 
right in your own facility, you at least could direct them or feel good about them directing themselves, I should say, right. out on their own working out. Here it's now everybody's confined to their own individual home. So I think that makes it a little bit more challenging, especially when you're trying to at the same time, to your point, also get your calendar in motion as to how far along or how much backwards your group is compared to other given circumstances. And he made the point that back in 2011, it was one of the highest injury rates for yeah. a season. Season, uh, in the NFL since they've been tracking it. So he expects that it'll be just as challenging now. Whenever the players do get back, he indicated they're really going to have to work them in slowly here. You know, you could be in shape, but it doesn't mean your body's ready for football movement. So they're going to have to work these guys in slowly whenever they do get in the house, get, you know, in the building in front of them and you start doing football work on the field together uh, to make sure you don't have some injury issues. Lance, the other thing that he mentioned uh, was the technology part. He said, look, uh, when they can first start meeting with the players, that's going to be next week. Um, they have to you know, kind of teach these guys how to make sure they know how to use the technology before you can even start doing football stuff. So uh, they're going to make sure everyone's comfortable with the technology part of it before they really dig into the offensive and defensive systems. Yeah, because if everybody's not necessarily technologically savvy, then you're going to have your group behind because you're waiting for another player to catch up. But he did say, and this to me was one of the biggest takeaways, and I think it speaks volumes John, of his teaching background, because remember, that's where Joe Judge started teaching kindergarten kids as opposed to NFL players. The fact that he believes this generation growing up around cell phones and computers and really having so much technology at their disposal that hopefully that'll bode well for this group to catch on, as you mentioned, to the technology so that they don't fall behind. And I think another aspect of this remote learning, which is just like what students are delving into across the country is giving the coaching staff an opportunity to get to know these guys. See, that's the other thing that Joe Judge and the coaching staff have to account for that a Doug Peterson and the Eagles have already accounted for. You know, he's got to learn who Daniel Jones is as a person on and off the field. He has to learn about the existing players, the new faces, whereas some of these other teams, they may have those established relationships if there's continuity with the coaching staff. So what Joe Judge explained is it's not so much about implementing the schemes and the game plans. I want to get to know these guys. I want to be able to stare at them in the face, have conversations, and know how these guys catch on, the best way to adapt, the best way they learn, without even talking about necessarily X's and O's at this point. Absolutely. Uh, he also had some interesting comments, uh, Lance, and by the way, before people ask and say, wait a second, you didn't talk about what he mentioned in terms of players on the roster. We need to know what he thinks of Nick Gates. Is he a tackle? Is he a center? Is Julian Love a safety or a slot guy? Well, no, no, no. <laughs> there was still no talk about individual players since he hasn't gotten them face-to-face. -face. So, uh, sorry, we cannot give you any uh, further elaboration or um, clarity on what the thoughts are on specific players already on the Giants. So, yeah, we're going to have to wait on that probably, who knows, maybe until <laughs> August when these, when these guys are July or June or whenever these guys finally get in the building. So, um, in terms of the draft, Lance, the one that I, I thought was interesting, we've kind of talked about this on a previous show, you know, since you can't see these kids face-to-face, -face, Joe Judge did say it's useful to have them on video chat because then you can see their you know, eye contact, facial expressions, body language. He thinks that is very useful in judging players. And he also pointed out that, yes, he didn't get to attend any pro days, which he thought was going to be very important and things of that nature, that he and his staff do have a lot of connections to a lot of these college programs. I mean, you go back through it, uh, you know, he has connections to Alabama, 
uh, to Georgia with Kirby Smart over there. Uh, go through it. The linebackers coach, Scherer, he has uh, Tennessee connections. I think he also has Georgia connections, if I'm not mistaken. So he has a lot of guys on his staff that have college connections. And, and to quote him, this is a paraphrase, but it's, it's close. You know, it's one thing to talk to people from programs about these players. That's great. It's another thing to talk to people from these programs that you can trust and you know are going to be honest with you. And he said that's going to be invaluable as they decide which guys they want to make part of this team. You outlined a lot of the current coaches on staff that have college connections. And the other thing connected to that that I found very interesting that he brought up, he said even if we're scouting a player that they themselves have not coached, they may have strategized in trying to slow them down by playing them. So that's one aspect that they could bring to the table. But the other thing that was fascinating was that a lot of these coaches, and I didn't even think about this, John, recruited a lot of the players that are across the college landscape. Because, you know, if you're coming from a prominent D1 program, you're pretty much going after a lot of similar players. So a lot of the coaches currently on the Giants staff who are not that far removed from the college game, as you noted, just because they didn't have a chance to coach a lot of these guys that are in the 2020 draft class, they may have gone to their houses, met with their parents, got to know them as individuals when they were on the recruiting trail. So I thought that was something that was also very interesting. And here's the other thing. Even if they themselves may have not recruited them, normally the coaching landscape is so small. We even talk about it when Joe Judge was putting his staff together, John. It's really the who's who of who you know, and maybe you don't know the guy indirectly. You know somebody directly who then knows them, perhaps through another connection. So, you know, these guys all talk. It's a small community. I think through all the connections they have currently on staff and Judge's connections himself, that they have enough branches to get to to know these guys inside and out who they may have not had a face-to-face meeting. And by the way, the point about the face-to-face interactions through the internet where he likes to see the facial expressions, Dave Gettleman, remember, also emphasized that when he and Kevin Abrams had their conference call the other day when he was asked about, well, what are you missing out of the draft process that you normally would get? And he said, well, normally we take the guys out for dinner, right? And you get to know who they are. So he feels by at least having the face-to-face conversations through the computer, you can at least stare at them, see how they're expressing themselves as opposed to just doing it blindly through the phone. Yeah, no question. And I think that's certainly something that would be handy as you look at this. A couple other things, Lance, that I thought was interesting, and this was one of his first answers about the draft process specifically, that he his quote was basically that no college player is NFL ready. Even if they think they are, they show up, they realize very quickly they're not. So you're not really drafting a guy because you think he's going to help you right away. And you're drafting for what their upside is and the player that they can become. So I think when you evaluate now and again, this is obviously not all Joe Judge's decision that's being done in conjunction with Dave Gettleman. Uh, he seemed to, to favor guys that have room to grow. And I think the physical traits that are trainable, so if you teach them the correct te- technique, then they can be dominant players down the road. Yeah, it was really, to me, the biggest takeaway with respect to that point was we're not necessarily looking for a guy that's going to come in year one and he has to make an immediate impact. The way that I interpreted that, John, was they're looking for guys in the long run that are going to be able to contribute. And it goes back to the conversations that you and I have had on this program when the Giants took Saquon Barkley. Even though Barkley did have an unbelievable rookie year, the thought process, as Dave Gettleman said, was 
Who can put on the gold jacket? Well, you're not going to put a gold jacket on, John, after year one. You're going to ultimately earn your way to the gold jacket. So once again, I know I'm going a little bit off on a tangent, but to me the point is, and this is what I always say about the draft, you're not looking for the quick fix. You're looking for the player that has the most upside that is going to warrant the second contract and fulfill the expectations over the course of the rookie deal. So what Joe Judge was emphasizing is they're looking for somebody who they're going to give a rookie contract, and over the course of the four years, they expect that player to be productive as opposed to flash year one, and then we'll wait and see whether or not they could build off of that. That's what I took from his comments about the evaluation process, looking for that versatility. It's not just about the wow factor in 2020. Yeah, and I think in the same way, it's then dangerous to pick for need and again, this isn't going to team building. This isn't talking about, oh, we have a hole. We need to plug it. Let's do it. Because you don't know what your needs are going to be two years from now. You don't know what your needs are going to be next summer. So if you draft the best player, you're going to figure out a way to get them on the field uh, one way or the other. He also mentioned in terms of players, he needs all the players the Giants bring in. And by the way, we could talk about a lot of these draft prospects with Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus in just a couple of minutes. Um, he needs, says all these guys have to be versatile. They have to be able to do more than one thing, whether it's special teams or something else. You know, He doesn't want a guy that just can come in and do one thing and that's it. And that answer came off of a question, if memory serves me correctly, John, where he was specifically asked about Isaiah Simmons and positional value was the term that came up that would you shy away from Isaiah Simmons because maybe you're not going to put him on the field for three downs. He certainly can be on the field for three downs. I'm just laying out a hypothetical. And his response was, well, if we take somebody like Isaiah Simmons or hell, if we take an offensive lineman. To your point, John, you still want to know that the offensive lineman may be able to contribute on special teams if he doesn't become a starter in year one. Or you want to be able to know that he could come out and help the field goal unit or the punt return unit or whatever it may be. So I think that was his point. You're always looking for versatility. You're not just enamored by the guy who on film, for example, like Isaiah Simmons, lined up in the slot, drove back in coverage. They utilized in the box to get after the quarterback or stop the run. You're looking for that in every single player, and that should always be a part of the evaluation, regardless of whether or not you're looking at a first-round pick or even a third-round pick. I would say the evaluation and the level of expectation should really remain the same and operate the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you 100%. The other final thing that I'll bring up, Lance, and you can kind of bring up whatever you want, um, the Giants, he also mentioned that they're still kind of trying to figure out exactly what the mechanics are going to be. And in order to see what works best, they're going to conduct with the league and, and at least how I took it kind of on their own too, mock drafts to see how the best way is to communicate who's talking to who and, you know, just to make sure that this process goes as, as simply as uh, smoothly as possible. And that, I think, is in conjunction, John, with the fact that the league itself is going to run yep. an entire mock draft. At least that's what I'm led to believe. So I think that the Giants are also going to be able to practice that communication when the league actually runs its own mock draft. And I'm sure they're probably going to go through the timing, how to get in communication with the league, give some flexibility for working out trades, making sure everybody has everybody's numbers, especially the GMs of the various teams. So, you know, that's not something that I I think the Giants themselves are trying to tackle. I think that's a league-wide thing, and I think the league is going to do everything in its power to help the teams in this now next week leading up to ultimately Thursday's start. Absolutely. Lance, anything else on, on your mind from what you heard from Joe Judge, or does that well, cover it? Well, the one other thing that I wanted to bring up, and I'm actually a little bit disappointed that you didn't lead off with this because this may be the biggest takeaway from his conference call with the reporters is the fact that throughout the draft process – 
he will be relying on his golden retriever who will be sitting aside him, whether it be on the couch or on the chair in his yeah, basement he as he operates things. That, to me, was the biggest take. And he said he might have some of his, his kids like take down names <laughs> off the board after, after they get selected and stuff like that because he basically yeah. said he's working out of his basement, which is where I am too, by the way. And look, you have your family there. It's, it's just kind of part of the deal on, on how things go these days. Well, and he even half-jokingly said, you know, it's not as if he doesn't want his children to be around. Listen, it's their house, and they want to interact with one another. But I think at the same time, he was trying to find the ideal balance, like I'm sure all of these NFL executives are trying to find, where, you know, when you go to the facility, John, you don't have to worry about your son or daughter coming down in the basement to bother you out of nowhere. You remove yourself from the family environment. This is going to be a little bit different because even if you lock yourself in the basement, who's to say that the kid or the dog doesn't run down when you're about to make your pick and you're on the clock. So I think what Joe judge was saying is something that relates to any parent who is trying to balance work as well as family life. You just got to try to find the ideal balance so that you could stay focused on the task at hand. And now we'll turn our attention to our first guest. He is Pro Football Focus's chief draft analyst and the architect. Is that a fair call, Mike, of the PFF draft guide? Architect, you like that? Yeah, architect. I, I can get on board with that. I, <laughs> at one point, maybe I wanted to be an architect, so this is kind of living up to that dream, I guess. Very good. He's Mike Renner. And, Mike, uh, why don't we start first? How can the folks find your draft content uh, via PFF and your draft guide? Yeah, so... Uh, if you go to the website, pff.com, the draft guides, I think $7.50, it's only $7.50 with the promo code SCORE20. You just need any subscription, we'll get you the draft guide. And it touched on it. It's over 1,200 pages now, I think. Yeah, actually, Mike, I, I just downloaded version 3.0, 1,259. Hello. There you go. <laughs> it is jam-packed. And, and if that scares you away, it's a lot of pictures, a lot of graphs, a lot of charts, <laughs> not a lot of reading. Like The reading is minimal. Uh, trying to inform you with as little reading as possible is what I try to do. So uh, there's it, it a ton of information there. And, like, all the stats we give for PFF, like pro stuff, you'll get for these college guys. And it's pretty, it's pretty sweet. It really is, folks. A, a lot of really good data out there that you really can't find anywhere else. So, Mike, for the Giants, their big dilemma and one that we've been talking about ad nauseum since the combine and before is at number four. Um, the, the conversation is, is it Isaiah Simmons? Is it Jeffrey Okuda? Or is it one of the top offensive tackles? When you guys at PFF take everything in consideration, your metrics, position value, which for Simmons I'm sure is impossible to calculate because who knows what the hell position the guy <laughs> yeah. plays anyway, uh, how do you kind of sort that group of guys in terms of overall player value and position value and you kind of put it all into your little uh, vat over there and apply your analytics to it as well? Well, we think Akuda is the most valuable, but they already have options there in New York at the cornerback position. Obviously, just signed James Bradbury, drafted one in the first round last year, and DeAndre Baker. I don't think any of those guys really profile well to the slot, so I don't think you're going to draft cornerbacks. You'd have to bench one of them. So I think that nixes him off any board. And I don't think you know Isaiah Simmons is a bad consolation prize in that, even though we think Akuda is probably more valuable because he just kind of the defense's you know, option or the defense's answer to modern offenses, and that he can he can match up with any formation you throw at him. He can play pretty much any position you want over the middle of the field and execute it at a high level. So, I would lean Simmons in the tackle versus Simmons debate, but I'd also lean trade down if I do if I'm if I'm dead set on tackle. I'd lean hey trade down even if I'm getting a fourth rounder, th- third rounder, even if I'm getting anything to move down this draft. You're still going to get a top tackle. And you got a lot of holes in that defense to fill that any draft capital you can get for moving down, I'd be in the market to do so. 
Well, Mike, even if the Giants do move down, there are certainly a number of options at the tackle position. And we're all curious, obviously, your perspective of if the Giants are having a debate between Wills, Wirfs, Becton, Andrew Thomas, where would you lean if three or all four perhaps are still on the board whenever they get set to pick? So I'm on our draft board, Andrew Thomas is number one. But for the Giants, if you're going to plug a guy in at right tackle right away, and that's where you want him to be your starter and long-term starter, I'd lean one of the right tackles because they're that, they're that close on our board. I think they're 8, 9, and 11 right now on our draft board. So they're that close in talent, talent-wise that I wouldn't want to flip a guy and have him go up against NFL competition and you know maybe ruin his confidence year one. Uh, let a guy stay at the position he played last year, so that would be worse to Wills. I'd lean in that debate worse. Uh, but again, all three of those guys are so close in our bar, ridiculously graded out at an incredibly high level as true juniors that uh, there are three of the top tackle prospects we've seen in our six years of doing this to where uh, I don't think you can go wrong if you get one of those three, that is. Mike, final question on the tackles, and I just want to dive into some of the tape detail because I think I watched five or six games of both Worfs and Wills. And I think it's interesting, and I figured when I was going to turn on Tristan Wirfs after the combine, all the great athletic testing, and you know, he was Kurt, coached by Kurt Ferentz, right? I'd see, like, perfect hand placement and things like that. And I thought, I, I, after I watched this tape, I understood why heading into the combine, some people thought he might be better suited to play guard. Not that he can't play tackle, I'm not saying that. But I saw some tendencies where he get, gets beaten side a lot, and his hands get outside an awful lot where I could see it, while I thought Wills, fundamentally, the way he moves his feet, his hand placement, I thought that was just a little bit more solid from snap to snap. How did you see those two guys from that perspective? Yeah, for me, Wills' lateral agility is off the charts. I mean, the way the guy moves from side to side is special. Like, he looks like a tight end out there, the way he can move. And I know he didn't test off the charts at the Combine, but... I don't really need that to know that he has elite pass protection sort of traits there and probably better than even worse, but worse is just an ox. I mean, that dude rolls in 320 uh, <laughs> with ease. Like he, He's got the, the biggest lower half I've seen from an offensive lineman. I think that's why everyone wants to call him a guard because right. his lower his legs are like tree trunks, but then his upper body looks like, I mean, he looks like a tight end. His upper body doesn't have much going on there, so I think there's, some room for him to even fill out more physically and get even more physically dominant. So I think that, like I said, it's so close to my eyes. And actually the grades say that worse pass protected. He had a higher pass protection grade this past season than Will did. Oh, did he really? Wow. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, the inside moves are an issue. But he really gets off the line and really moves so smoothly. The Kind of the opposite of what you think for a guy his size. You think of this brute sort of line of scrimmage mover. But, no, he's kind of – much more of a smooth mover, glides kind of across the football field. So, uh, like I said, I, I, they're really tough. Like, we've gone back and forth on these guys a bunch because they're all so close in our eyes. By the way, quick follow-up. I feel bad for Andrew Thomas. He gets shoved in this draft class with Makai Becton, who's a freak show, Tristan Wirfs, who's a freak show, and everyone's like, oh, Thomas didn't test that well. He was still in, like, the 80th or 85th percentile in nearly all his tests, and the dude is 36-inch arms. If it's any other class, people are talking about him like he's a real athletic marvel, too. And that's the thing. It's like these guys are all young. They're all true juniors. They're all, uh, you know, athletically uh, on another level, except for Thomas. And they're all, you know, already productive on the football field. That, like you said, Thomas, any other class is like unquestionably the top tackle. 
we see him as top tackle because he was the best already on the football field. And it's like haggling over this perceived ceiling that these guys have. Like, Mitchell Schwartz is the best right tackle in the NFL and does not have elite athletic traits. You don't need that to be an elite tackle. You just need to, you know, have the skill of playing tackle. It is a skilled position. So that's why we have Thomas number one. Mike, obviously the Giants don't need a quarterback, but the quarterbacks is probably going to impact the options for the Giants, whether they stay at four or have trade options to move back. So how much substance, in your opinion, is at the top of this year's quarterback class? We know Burrow will likely go one, but with respect to Tua, with respect to Herbert, I'll even throw in Jordan Love, who I feel is one of the most polarizing quarterbacks I think we've analyzed in the last few years because some think he's going to go high in the first round. Others could say he falls to the mid rounds and may never even become a starter. But based on what you think that could very well impact the options for the giants at four and even in the second round. So I'm of the opinion that some team is going to move up for Tua and Herbert will is very likely to fall out of, you know, top five, six, like he might, he might fall a ways in this draft. I only think Burrow and Tua when it's all said and done, end up as top six picks. And I think you see Herbert fall down boards and Love may not even go until late first or early second in this year's draft, similar to kind of this, this point uh, last year. Everyone's talking about Drew Locke maybe going in the mid-first, uh, you know, late first, and then he falls all the way to the second. So uh, I, I do think that that's how ultimately cooler heads and like actual analysis of these guys and how they played football, Justin Herbert and Jordan Love, will sort of make its way, and teams will covet just Tua and Burrow. That's just my take. And I, and I saw a report from Gil Brand earlier today saying he thinks the Dolphins could pass entirely on this quarterback class and just draft a position player. And so that, that, wow. that to me, is a real possibility with the way their roster is. So uh, I do think that that's my sort of take on how this quarterback uh, class goes. Mike, I want to dip into the pass rushers here once you get past you know, Chase Young and, and uh, Chase on because those guys aren't going to be there for the Giants in the second round. And I think there's almost like two classes of rushers in this draft. You have like the, the, the power rushers on the outside, and then the guys that kind of interest me are kind of these smallish guys that have really good pass rush moves, the Josh Uches, the, the Zach Bond when he rushes the passer off the edge, and you sit there and like, boy, you know, those guys got great moves as pass rushers, but what the hell am I going to do with them for three downs <laughs> if, you, if you get to draft yeah. them? So how do you view those two guys and the other guys kind of like them where they're really good edge rushers, but they're like 230, 235 pounds? Yeah, so I, I like of that bunch of guys like that. I like probably Zach Bond the best because I think he can actually move off ball and, and be a guy on early downs, maybe even play, you know, play off ball entirely, and then move down and rush the passer. Uh, I think that could be, and that, that's kind of a fit kind of for what the Giants defense likely will look like uh, in 2020 here. So he he would be a fit for them. Uh, but the rest of the class, it is tough because a lot of those undersized guys, they look really good in college. Like it's really easy to win when you're that quick guy in college, but all of a sudden you get to the NFL, all the tackles are pretty athletic. Like you, you don't have that innate athletic advantage over these guys that you could just sauce this you know tackle that can't move. Uh, they get their hands on these, you know, short guys, and all of a sudden they're toast. And so, I- I'm not sure I love any of them as pure edge guys. And I think you almost saw that a little bit with O'Shane Simmons last year with the Giants. Like he was fine, but he was not near the player we saw at Old Dominion, who was dominating. Uh, and then went Senior Bowl and did well there. Like I-, I think you just don't you don't get the same sort of uh, 
they're not, they can't execute the same moves in the NFL. So I, I like Vaughn in terms of moving off the ball. If there's one guy I think could actually hold up on the edge, it's probably Josh Uchi because he has longer arms. Uh, he did it more often against like guards and was more versatile, and you could use him in a role like that. So I'd take a shot at those guys just because it's such a weak edge class that really no one else is like exciting me whatsoever. So I'd, I'd throw some. I'd throw some a draft pick at him, maybe like early round three for Uchi, and then top around two for Bond. But that's that's about it for those small guys on the edge. I know you said that you're not very fond of the rest of the rushers, but I want to throw two other names out at you because I think they're somewhat intriguing. At least, Mike, based on their productivity at the collegiate level, Curtis Weaver, Boise State, their edge rusher, who many predict could go in the second round, and then Bradley Anai out of Utah, another guy who also has put up some pretty impressive sack numbers during his career. So I'm a big fan of Curtis Weaver. To me, he's the second best true edge rusher in this draft class. Now we have A.J. Epinesa from Iowa High on our board, but I think he's more of a play-over-the-tackle, kick-him-inside kind of guy, not really a true off-the-edge. Weaver just, I mean, he just won. He had 74 combined sacks and hits over yeah. the last three years, like averaged over 20, well over 20 a year for three straight years. Any game, he was just, when he got one-on-one shots with offensive tackles, he won. And he doesn't look the part. He kind of, he's like six. Two two sixty five, a real odd build, real squatty build, uh, not great length, but he did have a seven second three cone, which is an elite time for a guy that size. Like it's a very good time. He can bend off the edge and just uses his hands really well. So I think that's how, how he gets back to the quarterback, puts up all those hits and sack numbers. So I would, I'm a fan of his. I don't, I don't think production like that, like again, like I said, something we've never seen before. How elite he was in terms of his pass rushing grades. Even outside of the Power Five, uh, we haven't seen a guy produce the way he did. So I'll take my chance on that guy who knows how to rush the passer, even if he doesn't necessarily look the part athletically. How about the center class in this group? Are those guys worth the bang for the bucket, 36 for the Giants? And how do they compare to a couple of the really good classes we've had at that position the last few years? I like Cesar Ruiz. I I think he's worth the pick there in the second round, the top second round, because to me, he's super young, and again, I, I focus on age and the offensive line. I call you know all the tackles being true juniors and Caesar Ruiz being a true junior because it is such a developmental based position. Like to see guys who are good and young is rare. Usually, Andre Dillard last year coming out of the first round, fifth year. Uh, Garrett Bradbury, first rounder, I, I think was a fifth year senior as well. Like these guys, it takes a long time to develop along the offensive line. Because a lot of it is a learned skill, and for Cesar Ruiz to be as good as he was this past year at Michigan is special. And so I think he is, uh, you know, if you're going to draft him at the back end of the first round, I'm not going to argue too much. Now, the positional value of center, of center might not give you that bang for your buck, but I think with how, uh, how much you want to surround Daniel Jones with an optimal situation, I could get on board with it and with how good Cesar Ruiz is. So that, that would be the guy I target if he's still on the board there uh, at the top of the second. Mike, staying on the center position, another name that is interesting also within the Big Ten is Wisconsin's Tyler Biotish. How would you compare Biotish's upside to what you just mentioned about Cesar Ruiz? I think Biotish might be a, a tad better in the run game at this point in his career. He's probably a little bit, probably a little bit niftier, a little bit better with his hands. I don't think he quite has the balance that Ruiz does, and I think that's why I'm a big fan of Ruiz's pass protection. He just never gets out of place, and so he's not losing quickly. Some you saw two offers from Biotis this year, him get push pulled, and then he you know fall forward towards 
the guy just let a free runner at his quarterback, you don't see that same sort of reps from Ruiz. So uh, I think from that perspective, like you want the pass protector. You want the guy who's better yeah. at pass protection. That's why I'm higher on Ruiz. But the Otters to me is probably more of a third rounder at this point. If the Giants go Simmons at four and they're still – Desperate for a tackle in round two. I'm going to assume Josh Jones is gone because that would be too easy for you. If they're looking at the Lucas Niangs, the Isaiah Wilsons, the Austin Jacksons, uh, that group of guys that you know is outside of your top five tackles, I feel like when you're picking these tackles, Mike, and I'm not sure if you guys have done the research on this or not, at the end of the round run, the top of round two, I feel like there's such a high bust potential here. I'll throw Ezra Cleveland into the mix, too. What have your guys' research said about picking tackles at that point in the draft? And just what do you think of that group of in that second tier of tackles in this class? And how risky are they to take at 36? Yeah, I mean, I think there is something to at positions like that where they are so in demand. Uh, everyone needs a tackle. Everyone will always needs a tackle. And so if there's a good one available, teams draft them. So the fact that, like, if, if teams have already, you know, passed over this guy, every team has already passed over this guy, there might be an issue why. And so there is something to that. But also at the same time, Mitchell Schwartz was the 37th pick. You know, he was, yeah. he was right at the top of the second round, the best right, ta- right tackle in the NFL. So it's not unheard of that a guy performs there. Who I would say to pick there if you're going offensive tackle is the kid from St. John's, Ben Barch, the D3 kid, because, one, I mean, the reason why everyone's passing over him would be because he went to a D3 school and no one wants to be the guy that drafted a bust from D3 in the first <laughs> round. Because that's how you lose your job as a GM. But in the second round, you know, no one quite remembers. So you already, uh, already passed on that. And I think he has, you know, borderline first-round talent, but we just haven't seen him go up against real competition enough. But when he did, you know, at the Senior Bowl, he was very, very good. Like, he was behind Josh Jones, the best offensive tackle there. And it's one of those things where you could have excused away the fact that, hey, you know, he's coming from D3. He's never faced a guy who runs a 4 740 in his life off the edge. Like, he's never faced any sort of athleticism at all. If he gets owned here, whatever. Like, we can, it's fine. He, he can still play in the NFL. He still has all the movement skills, but he didn't. It was kind of the opposite. Like, he went up against Jabari Zuniga from Florida and stonewalled the bull rush in his tracks. And he's never seen a guy... Uh, near the athlete that Jabari Zuniga. So that, to me, was rare. And I think that, that reminded me a lot of Ali Marpet when he went to the senior bowl mm. from Hobart and dominated there that week of practices. And now he's one of the best guards in the NFL. So I think the only reason that he's going to fall in this draft is because you know, kind of the unknown and the D3 aspect of it. But to me, what he showed there was very good tackle play. So I, that'd be who I would take if I'm drafting at the top of the second round and need a tackle. So then really quickly, you think the other guys I mentioned, they're being overrated a lot by the league. You see them more as what, late twos, early threes, day three guys? Yeah, well, so Isaiah Wilson just like, he can't move. No, he I, just starts. Dude, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I saw the same thing on tape. I don't get it. <laughs> it's So to me, if you're talking about you know, quote-unquote upside at tackle position, Upside is the ability to move laterally. Agility, to me, is upside at the tackle position. Pure strength is not upside. Pure strength does not pass protect in the NFL. Agility does. You can improve strength to some degree. can't really improve agility. That is who you are. So, to me, Isaiah Wilson is a guard. Austin Jackson is just so developmentally behind the curve. Like, he has a ways to go. He's a young dude. He's going to turn 21 this offseason. He hasn't even turned 21 yet. Uh, but... Like he's probably going to take it on the chin for a few years at the tackle position before he ends up ever being a good tackle. And he very well could, but like I said, he's just 
technically his punch isn't there. Uh, his pass sets are a little choppy. Like there's a lot to be cleaned up, and I don't think it's going to happen in a short period of time with him. So that's why I'm a little bit lower on him. Uh, Cleveland, I, I could get on board with. Like he's been fairly good in pass protection. Level has level competition concerns himself, and the fact that he didn't like dominate at Boise State is a little concerning. Like he still have guys from beating him in pass pro. Which, you, if you're going to draft a guy like that, you want to look like Josh Jones. If you want to draft a guy from small school who just like didn't get beat all last year, so that's a little concerning with Cleveland. But like his athleticism, again, he has the quote-unquote upside you want to see from tackle. He has the agility, the movement skills to mirror faster edge rushers in the NFL. So that'd be if you're going to draft uh, any guy not Barge, that'd probably be my second choice. Well, speaking of the topic, Mike, of depth, I think from what we're hearing, if there's any position that has an overwhelming amount of depth, at least in the first three rounds, it's wide receiver. And that could be a position that the Giants choose to address. They certainly have some options on the roster right now, but there's some injury history and maybe a concern that they want to add a bigger wide receiver. Do you, first of all, agree that the depth is overwhelming at that position, that the first three rounds is going to set all type of records? And who's a name or two that you think Maybe they're in the second or the third round that is good value that perhaps the Giants may have some interest in. Yeah, I think they could be in use of almost a bigger body, like a true X type of wide receiver. I'm not sure any either of Slade, Shepard, or Tate fill that role, that guy who, you know, can go on the outside, you need him to be covered, and will be able to do so. Uh, I do agree it is an absolutely loaded. Uh, draft class at the wide receiver position. We have 15 guys in our top 75 right now uh, that are wide receivers, and I think seven in our top 25. So there's a lot of talent to go around. There's not going to be seven wide receivers drafts in the first round. I don't think. There might actually be, but I I just think with that much talent, you end up seeing teams pass being like, hey, I'll get one in the second round, like, uh, like we kind of did last year to some degree. So I think there is, uh, to me – if you're going to get the guy, like I, I just suggested, that true guy who can be covered on the outside, it's probably going to be pick 39. You're at the top of the second round, wherever the Giants pick, actually. Can't remember off the top of my head. but 36. Uh, wherever that is. And I think it would be someone like a T. Higgins from Clemson, someone like a Michael Pittman from USC. Both those guys, bigger bodies, big catch radius, but also like can get off the line of scrimmage already, can move uh, and run a slant route and get open on that, as well as you know, beat out physical guys down the football field. So, that would be ideally sort of like your dream scenario. Uh, that would be who uh, I, I'd, uh, I'd draft there. You don't see anyone dropping all the way down to 90. Remember, the Giants don't have a pick at the top of the third round, so they're waiting around till 99 between their second and third round picks, which gets really interesting. Anybody that you think, you know, maybe a Colin Johnson, Antonio Gandy-Golden, anyone you like on the bigger side in that range between like 99 and 110 with a pick in the third and fourth round of a guy that could fit that mold? Not really. Like I said, those guys go, the guys like that tend to go quickly. I, yep. I, if I'm going to take a shot down there, maybe, I, I don't know if like a Gabriel Davis from UCF would make sense down there. He's a guy who you would bank on developing, though. Only a junior coming out, young guy, very productive at UCF, but they run, they run kind of that uh, old Baylor scheme where he was just running goes and posts. And right. So you have no route running sort of background on him he got open on goes and posts for a big dude and that's that's you know there's uh, that's obviously encouraging but you really don't know what you're going to get with him uh when you ask him to run you know a more complete route tray mike when it comes to another position that i think maybe the giants could target specifically in the second round 
maybe the safety position because of the fact that Jabril Peppers at least is penciled in as a starter. Julian Love could be an option who they drafted last year. Maybe they toy with him in the slot. Time will tell. Xavier McKinney, Antoine Winfield Jr., Grant Delpit, certainly three names that I think could be in that ballpark. Your thoughts on those three, and is there perhaps some disparity between those three in value? Well, I'll just start off by saying, one, I love Julian Love as safety. I, I thought he was a really smart football player in Notre Dame and liked him as a prospect coming out. So I, I think that is a very good option for them. Top of round two, I, I think if you're looking for uh, a little a guy who brings a little something different to the table from what they have already at the safety position, I would look at Ashton Davis from Cal because he actually has some legit speed. You have two guys in Jabril Peppers and Julian Love who aren't blazers. And Jabril Peppers you know, fast enough to play safety, but not a guy who really can cover ground on the back end. Ashton Davis, if he would have ran at the combine, probably would have run maybe high four threes. Like that, he was a former track star at Cal, played pretty much single high in their defense there. And, and like I said, it's something they don't have on the roster right now for the Giants. The guy who really is a true, you know, sort of safety net on the back end that can really clean stuff up uh, without as a single high safety. So to me, that would be if I'm looking anywhere. That's where I'd go because Jabril is more of a box guy. And like you said, Julian Love is more of a slot guy. The deep safety, he, he is probably the best pure deep safety Ashton Davis is in this draft class. How do you see Kyle Duggar and Jeremy Chin, two small school guys that could be day two guys? Duggar I like, but almost as more of a linebacker. Okay. Um, he's just so explosive. And he, played, and he shows on tape with them. Like They're both ridiculously explosive. But it definitely shows up more at Duggar. Like when he attacks, he's he's at full speed. Like he has no fear in his game. He will rock running backs and just lay booms on dudes left and right and attack blocks and has no fear in that regard. So I want him, you know, around the ball, around the line of scrimmage. Uh, his his tape at Lenoir Ryan, like he he didn't have to read routes because <laughs> he was so fast. Like he could just get there. Like he, he could. The competition was pretty rough, so you can't really glean much off that tape. Like I said, the way he played the game, I almost want around the line of scrimmage. Uh, Jeremy Chin, probably more of, even though he's bigger, 221 pounds, he's probably more of the deep safety that I would play. He, I would line him up and down the field. He was not as good in the box. It, it takes a while to see his athleticism, but you see it more when he's like matching wide receivers in man coverage than you do seeing it attacking guys in the flat and attacking ball carries, that sort of thing. He's more patient in that regard, not as aggressive. Uh, as Duggar is when he attack on blocks and stuff like that, so he is more of he's more of a guy who I trust as a deep safety as well. So he he could be an option for them uh, if they are looking at that sort of role. Another safety, Mike, that had pretty much an outstanding season, especially when you take into consideration his resume prior to that, and may even have some flexibility to go at corner and safety, is Terrell Burgess out of Utah. How much upside do you see out of him, considering, like I said, last season was really the season to put himself on the map. Prior to that, he didn't have much playing time, and I think he was pretty much an unknown commodity. Yeah, I mean, there's no shame in sitting behind a a second rounder last year at Utah, and that's usually worry about the one-year wonders, but like in that scenario, oh, you can like see why he would ride the pine there for Utah until this past season, and he was great. Like he he has the the sort of the Malcolm Jenkins esque skill set to go between the slot and go deep and like seamlessly. If that's what you need on a given play, he can man play man coverage on the slot easily. So I think that's a skill set that's going to be coveted. I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's he's a top sixty player in our draft board right now. So if 
maybe not the top of the second round, but if he's there in the third or late third, he could fall all the way down there because he doesn't have – he won't be for everybody, I'll say that, because he doesn't have great length. A lot of teams love bigger safeties. He's not big. Uh, I think he's under 200 pounds still. But uh, that versatility, I think, will be coveted by certain teams, and I think the Giants – you know, would be one of those. You know, Mike, I'm with you. I think Julian loves a free safety, which means the Giants need a slot cornerback. They need a guy that can play nickel. They experimented last year, couldn't find somebody for the spot. And usually these smaller corners can drop to around three and four. You can find a good slot corner in that, you know, 95 to 110 area. Who are some of the slot nickel DBs you like in this draft that might be available for the Giants around pick 100? Yeah, this is a fantastic draft to be in need of a slot. Uh, There are three guys I'll give you that I'm, big fans of what they bring to the table as slot cornerbacks. One is Clemson's Kayvon Wallace, and he's the one guy who legitimately was a slot cornerback. That's the only role he played at Clemson over the course of his career. Yes, he was listed as a safety, but he basically was their slot cornerback and very productive for them, a very good athlete who tested out really well on the change of direction drills at the combine, and a physical sort of guy who's not going to be a liability against the run. I think he was 210 pounds uh, at the combine. So he's the real deal is slot cornerback. And then probably the guy whose tape is the most fun to watch is Amik Robertson from L.A. Tech, 5'8", 187. But he hits like a brick, really reminiscent of like Tyron Matthews' college tape. And that like he's the smallest guy in the field every time, but plays like he's the biggest. Uh, just a uh, very, very instinctive player, too. Like he's jumping routes and screens left and right. Uh, I, I think he's best going to be best in the slot because obviously 5'8", 187 is not going to hold outside. I might even consider him as like a safety starting because I don't, I don't really want to take this guy off the field. Like the tackling aspect, physical aspect is not an issue with him. So I'm a big fan of his game as well. And then I'll also throw in Josiah Scott from Michigan State, another guy who declared early. Meek Robertson declared early. Josiah Scott declared early out of Michigan State, not even 21. And he was outside cornerback for them. They played a ton of zone, but another guy who real instinctive uh, and actually pretty fast. I think he went like 4-4-2 at the combine. So – uh, those are three guys I would look at, and I would imagine at least two of them will be on the board there, down at you know the back end of the third round, because like you said, slot cornerbacks is not super in demand position, despite in our opinion being pretty valuable. Yeah, I agree. Mike, last one for me, just sort of a big picture, generic type of question, simply because you know one of the reasons why we wanted you on is to really delve deeper into the draft as opposed to what everybody's talking about near the top. Is there a hidden gem that maybe a people are not talking about that you think is being overlooked in this class that really could shine and provide true value, regardless of the position, in your opinion? Yeah, there's one guy who I really checks in at 53 on our board that I really haven't heard anyone sort of rumor in the first three rounds. And the guy is Geno Stone from Iowa. He's safety. Uh, and, he, and he declared early, too, and which surprised me that he declared early. And I haven't heard, like, any buzz about this guy in terms of drafts, you know, first three rounds or whatnot. And usually when you declare early at Iowa, like, you should be going fairly early, I would imagine. But uh, if he falls to the fourth round, he is – in my opinion, the most instinctive safety I've watched in the past like two or three draft classes. The guy just he sees things before they happen, and he's not a great athlete. I think he went four six two at the combine, but he is just he makes up that step that he needs to make up every single play because he really does see the game at a different level than anyone else I've seen. So, Geno Stone, like I think he probably falls to where about Julian Love fell last year, and, and is going to end up being. 
a starting safety for a long time in the NFL. Mike, awesome stuff, my friend. We really appreciate the time. Are they going to give you some time off when the draft is over? Or is that how this works or no? <laughs> you know, I, I get maybe like three weeks after. I'll get a few weeks off, and then it's on to 20, 2021. I, I probably got to put out a mock draft for 2021 a few days after. We'll see. Wow. I'll, get, oh I'll be getting on that. <laughs> the draft guy, preseason draft guy dropping. Oh, God bless, man. Mike, great stuff, man. We really enjoy your work. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks, Mike. For sure, John. Thanks for having me on. We thank Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus. Great information from him. Now let's turn our attention as we continue our school previews throughout this offseason leading up to the draft. We turn to Michigan, and we're going to speak to Isaiah Hole, who is the publisher of the Wolverines Wire, part of the USA Today Network. You guys see it. All the different teams get coverage across the country. Isaiah, you got John Schmunk and Lance Meadow uh, happily separated from each other here in the tri-state <laughs> area. How are you? <laughs> Uh, I'm good. I'm also kind of separated from everything and uh, kind of itching to start. I've been good until now. I just kind of, I kind of wanted to go outside and do stuff. And right now I uh, can't really do it, but, uh, Say you know. Yeah, absolutely. We're all, we're, all, we're all getting through it. Luckily, we can talk some football and, and have some fun together. So let's start with, with the guy at the top of the class, and I think that's Cesar Ruiz, someone that's getting first-round hype. The Giants need a center. Some people are talking about him at 36 if he's there for the Giants. Just give me your th- thumbnail on Ruiz as a player, as a person, in terms of your interactions with him in his time in Michigan. Uh, I'll start with it, per, uh, Cesar Ruiz, personally. Uh, I think he's just one of the great guys that Michigan's had uh, since uh, I've been covering the team in 2015. He, he's he's a fun-loving dude, and I know everyone kind of says that about, about guys, but he's just like one of those, those people that has a magnetic personality. Uh, a lot of his teammates say that he's the most fun player on the team, that he's the funniest player on the team. Uh, you, can, you can really get that. And on top of that, He's got an intelligence about him, and I, I know that that's kind of required uh, not only at Michigan, but also if you're going to be an offensive lineman anywhere. But I think that that's one of those things that carries over to his abilities on the football field. Michigan really took off on the offensive line once he became the starter at center. Part of that is because of Ed Warner taking over the position group, the former Ohio State offensive coordinator who won a national championship with the Buckeyes. Once he came in and Caesar took over the center position, you could really see just this, the entire offensive line take a giant leap forward. And a lot of it really does go to Ruiz for his ability to really be able to diagnose a defense, be able to make audibles as far as that's concerned, as far as changing the blocking. Uh, he, he's been known as being like the guy when it comes to that type of thing. And you keep in mind, you got. Four Michigan offensive linemen, all four have a really strong chance of getting drafted. There's a reason why Cesar Ruiz, who is the only you know junior in that group, uh, the rest of them have been uh, you know, been on campus since uh, either 2015 in John Runyon's case or 2016 in the others. It's it, there, it's not a surprise that Caesar's the one that has that highest upside. He, he's incredibly smart when, when it comes to his job at center. He can play the other positions as well. Uh, he, he did get some time subbing for Michael on Wenyu in 2017 when he was a true freshman uh, when on Wenyu was hurt. Uh, de- definitely took a little bit of time. Uh, he made some mistakes uh, pretty early when he was a true freshman playing right guard, but when he, once he became the center, he wasn't making those same mistakes. Uh, I believe he's only given up three sacks out of almost 1,000 snaps. Like If that's any kind of indication of what kind of 
excuse me, what kind of player he is. I mean, he's just got all kinds of capability. He's big, he's strong, he's fast for his size, and on top of that, he definitely has those leadership qualities that you're looking for in a center. One of the things when I've seen him on film, Isaiah, is his ability to run out wide on pulls and screens. He seems to have some athletic ability compared to other offensive linemen who play that position. How much was that what Michigan scheme asked him to do versus his own innate athletic ability? I think a lot of that actually is his own innate athletic ability. Michigan has changed its uh, its scheme on the offensive line, particularly uh, all three years since that he was in Ann Arbor. When he first arrived, uh, and that, that's actually a credit as well to, to his ability uh, as far as the intelligence goes, because when he arrived, he was uh, he he was tasked with learning both a, a power coverage or sorry power scheme as well as a zone blocking scheme. Then it switched to strictly power, uh, actually strictly zone, and then it kind of moved back to uh, having a little bit more uh, power elements to it. Uh, so that's kind of a, goes to show you how smart he is. But, yeah, a lot of that, uh, that willingness to, to go out and make those blocks downfield and, or you know, out, on the, out on the edges, that was more because he was capable of doing it and was confident enough to be able to go out and make those types of plays. That is really speaks to his... I mean, he, he came in having superior athleticism. That was one of the things that people kind of knew about him coming out of IMG Academy. I mean, to me, it's all about pass pro, right, these days. I know Michigan, you know, wasn't necessarily a, a big pass first team, but when they did do those straight dropbacks and he had to sit back and protect on five or seven step straight dropbacks, how was he in pass pro? Well, like I said earlier, it's, uh, I believe it was something like 996 pass, uh, pass attempts that he was as far as snaps that he was in on and only let up three sacks. And I believe in his career, if, 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 uh, I, if I read that stat correctly, uh, I mean, he's excellent at it. Michigan as a whole got a lot better at it, but especially considering, uh, I believe it was his first game starting. He, uh, it was against Minnesota in 2017. It was a night game. Uh, there was a lightning for the start. Didn't even start until like close to 10 o'clock. And uh, there, there was, I remember there was a play where Brandon Peters, who was the quarterback at the time, it was his first career start as well, and uh, Caesar missed a block and got Brandon somewhat annihilated. Uh, let's just say he didn't make that same mistake twice. That's the kind of player he is, is if he does make a mistake, he, he learns to not do it again. And I remember on that play him just immediately getting up and you know just t- tapping himself, being like, that one's on me. And uh, But I, I never saw him make a blatant mistake like he did uh, in that his first game as a starter uh, ever again. I mean, he's, I, I, you know, like you pointed out, he, he's looked at as being a uh, first-round draft pick type. Could fall to 36, like you said, uh, but I wouldn't imagine he's going to go much lower than that, and that speaks a lot to uh, his ability as a pass protector, good in run blocking as well, uh, and I think the most important thing is just his intelligence as being able to diagnose what a defense is bringing at him. You mentioned, Isaiah, that Michigan could have four offensive linemen ultimately drafted. Ben Bredesen, John Runyon, Mike Onwenu are the three others. I really want to group them all together because, as John mentioned off the top, we certainly have a number of players to tackle. Of those three, they all have a wealth of experience. This group really has started for each of the last three seasons, the bulk of them. Who, in your opinion, has the most upside out of those three? 
weirdly, it's the one that I haven't seen in any of the uh, the mock drafts. Uh, I haven't seen. I've only seen him actually in one mock draft, and it was Dane Brugler's mock draft that he released uh, yesterday, a seven round mock on the Athletic, and that's Michael Onwenu. I I don't know why this guy isn't getting uh, getting the eyes on him. Uh, he he's three hundred and sixty pounds, six four, six five, and he's built like a machine. He had an incredibly impressive senior year. It just you know, he was a, he was a guy that Pro Football Focus was calling out almost every week at just how good he was at both run and pass blocking, uh, how he wasn't giving up anything, and he just became so much more intelligent. He already always had the had the size and can move really well for someone that's that big. I can just imagine that once he gets uh, gets that type of NFL tutelage, yeah, if he, he's probably going to be a late round pick if he's picked at all. But he's one of those guys that I could I could imagine an NFL team is going to either draft him or sign him as an undrafted free agent, and it will only be a couple of years before he's an NFL starter. I mean, I'll I'll die on that hill because he's got everything <laughs> that you want. He's 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 got speed, athleticism. He's immovable, and I mean, like I said, 360 pounds. He came in at Michigan at like they said it was 365. But we all knew it was like 400. Whoa. Like they, they were, they were gonna, they were gonna fudge that. And not all of it was bad weight, but now he's 360, and it's all good weight. He he really works really really hard these last couple seasons. Once Ben Herbert became the strength and conditioning uh, uh, coach and the director of that program to to really transform his body. And he's, he, I mean, you're not gonna look at him and say, "Man, that guy is svelte." But he's definitely leaned up a bit, and it really helped him in his ability uh, as a as Michigan's right guard. I think that he's a you know a diamond in the rough for a team that's going to end up uh, eventually taking him. And that's not to disparage the other guys. I think uh, I mean Bredesen gets a a lot of second round draft grades, and I think that that's appropriate. Runyon, I've seen him go as high in some of these mock drafts as fourth round. He he's a guy who. Really grew into his own two-year All Ten Big uh, All Big Ten first team left tackle, uh, but run uh, on when you rather is the one that I think has the highest upside, the highest ceiling, and I'd be shocked if he doesn't have a really good pro career if someone takes a chance on him. I want to ask you about Josh Uchi because to me he's interesting. I watched him at the Senior Bowl up close and personal. I went back, looked at his tape, and boy, you know. I feel like he's such a good pass rusher. I know they didn't use him as a rusher as much as maybe some people thought they should have last year at Michigan. Is he a guy that you think can play in space and move around and cover? Because at his size, I'm just not sure he's a he's a three-down edge. He's not a three-down edge. You, you nailed that. But because he, Michigan had him technically as a Sam linebacker. Uh, he, he was a defensive end in high school. But when he got to Michigan, they put him at uh, the strong side linebacker position. But Michigan doesn't really utilize the Sam linebacker in its uh, in the defensive scheme under Don Brown. It's only a uh, coverage, uh, but uh, they because they have a bite what they call a viper, which is a linebacker uh, safety hybrid, which is in pretty much the rest of the time. But Uche really kind of showed off his versatility much more this year, particularly because last year. It was pretty strictly that he was coming in with his you know hand in the ground and and rushing the passer on third down. Led Michigan in sacks despite the obvious uh, you know 
situation that he was always in. But this year, Michigan implemented a lot more zone uh, in its uh, overall coverage. They tend to be man coverage all the time, but they implemented some more zone. And, and so Uche saw the field a little bit more often, maybe not a ton, but we saw him run with, with players like K.J. Hamler, who's been known as the speedster out of Ken, uh, Penn State. Uh, Speedy Eaglet is what people always called K.J. Hamler, and yet we saw Uche pretend like he was going to rush the passer, drop back into coverage on a deep, skinny post route, and still knock the ball away from K.J. Hamler as it wow. was a perfectly thrown ball. But Uche's that fast. He He's definitely a type of guy that, uh, if you if you have multiple fronts like I know the the Giants have, you can have him as that Sam linebacker and have him play those other roles in uh, downs one and two, and then have him rush the passer in the third down situation. Or I mean, you can mix it up. I mean, he's I think he's a perfectly made for a three four in the sense that he could, you know could be in you know every down. But, I mean, he's just so versatile, and I think that that's why you're not seeing him mocked more in the first round because I think teams look at him and they just don't know what to do with him. Honestly, out of everyone that is on the board for as far as Michigan's uh, Michigan's 12-plus guys that are eligible and very well could be drafted, I mean, Uche should be a no-brainer in the first round, but obviously it doesn't look like that's probably going to happen. So he's going to be one of those guys that, if when he's picked, whether it be the second, the third, I doubt it'll go as low as the fourth round. But it will be one of those things where the team that gets him, I, I guarantee, is going to make a huge deal out of getting him because he is so incredibly versatile. He's super fast. Uh, he said himself that he feels like he could play cornerback because he's that fast. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. I think yeah, safety not sure about might be one. more in the card. <laughs> if, if if you really were to pick in the defensive back position, maybe a safety position, but uh, he, he does have that type of skill set. He does have that capability. So uh, he's going to be a guy that is just going to be whatever team gets him, they're going to absolutely flaunt the fact that they picked him because he is probably one of the most versatile guys in the draft, not named Isaiah Simmons. But, I mean, he has he's very similar to Isaiah Simmons in the idea that you can use him in multiple different positions and just because Michigan didn't utilize him as much as they probably should have doesn't mean that he isn't capable. Well, one guy who certainly can play corner is Lavert Hill. I don't think there's any debate maybe compared to Uche. And you look at him on film, Isaiah, and you see the fact that he's got good instincts, the ball skills is there, the covered strength. However, everybody points to the size or the lack thereof, I should say, and whether or not he's even capable of playing on the outside or even in the slot on the NFL level, where do you see him fitting in in the NFL considering the limitations in size? I mean, I think you could play him either. He plays much bigger than his size. Uh, when, you, when you look at the fact that his mentor who came before him, uh, who played at the same high school as him, played at Michigan, Jordan Lewis is probably two inches shorter than Levert and got drafted in the third round by the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I, they're very similar players. I mean, they, they're they almost identical, as a matter of fact, if you watch uh, watch how those two different guys play. Uh, and the, even just the way they walk up to the line of scrimmage, it's pretty much a carbon copy, except Levert's got probably two inches on him. I do think he's probably best suited for the slot, just like the Cowboys have used Lewis mostly in the slot. 
and you can use him in some you know kick punt return type situations if you need to. He's done that sparingly while at Michigan, but he it does have a lot of speed. But listen, he, he's he's a guy that has an insane amount of athletic ability. He is a freak athlete. People don't really notice him as much because honestly, like he doesn't get thrown at him a lot. Uh, just like his counterpart, David Long, who got drafted last year by the uh, Los Angeles Rams, people were were questioning that good or not. And the truth is, is quarter, quarterbacks drop back. They look at the receiver that uh, Levert is on, and they usually say, I'm not going to go to that guy. So it's a very limited in being able to see what he can do because Michigan's always in man coverage. Uh, a little bit less so this year, but that's the name of the the game when it comes to Don Brown's defensive scheme is being able to have the cornerbacks be you know be on an island all the time. And Levert acquitted himself more than really well more often than not. If the ball's thrown his way, he's going to either deflect it or he's going to intercept it. That it's it's really that simple. I can only recall a handful of times less than on one hand the amount of times that Lavert Hill has made an obvious mistake and two of them came in the very first game that he was a starter so I, I've been really shocked because I've looked at all these seven round mocks and I haven't really seen his name come up but he's an absolute he was an absolute star player at Michigan and I absolutely think that uh he has the potential to be a really good pro in the league. Now, one guy that he probably covered a lot in practice was Donovan Peoples-Jones. How much was he held back by the quarterback situation? I know he dealt with an injury, too, this year, if uh, what I read is correct. Uh, just your thought on Donovan Peoples-Jones. How much more can he give if he gets put into a better situation? I don't I don't really think Michigan's – like, I feel like the, the – because Shea Patterson gets a lot of flack, and I, I – I can understand it to some degree. I mean, Patterson was injured as well early in the season. Uh, but once he recovered, I mean, his accuracy went up and was really slinging it around. Peoples-Jones is kind of a unfinished product, in my opinion. And in my opinion, he probably should have waited another year to come out, not just because I didn't think that 2019 was his best season, uh, it, it definitely wasn't uh, the best that I think is, he's capable of. And, yeah, he got a little bit of a slow start because he missed the first couple games due to injury. He didn't practice at all in the spring or the summer or any of that stuff uh, due to uh, a nagging groin injury. But even when he did come back, it, it seemed like there was sometimes a lack of focus. If you were actually to to take people's Jones and or you know basically change the way that the draft works and say – we, you know that that a team is going to take the most athletic freak. Peoples Jones would easily be a top ten guy, I, and easily be the top the first receiver taken off the board. I think he is by far the most freakish athlete uh, out of all the wide receivers in the entire country. But the problem is, is it didn't really come with production, and oftentimes that meant he wasn't getting off the line of scrimmage the way he should have. Or if he did, a lot of dropped passes. I think that that was a really big issue. You saw that in the Ohio State game. There was a drive where Shea Patterson hit him in the hands three times, and and all three were dropped, and it was a three and out. Uh, he dropped a touchdown in that same game. Uh, he, he, there really are very few moments that you can sit there and look, usually with a guy that has the accolades that he had coming out of high school, number one receiver in the class, a five-star 
you you would expect to to have a lot of moments in a three year college career that you could point to and say here you know here's the highlight reel here's the defining moments. Donovan Peoples Jones for whatever reason doesn't really have that, and uh, yet some of his counterparts do. So he I think his best football is ahead of him. I think that's definitely for sure. I do think that if he has a, a more uh, consistently accurate quarterback that isn't dealing with injuries like Shea Patterson was early in the year and having to learn a new offense at the same time. I I think that he'll benefit from that type of consistency, but I do think he needs to get some of the mental aspects of, of his essentially the wide receiver job down a little bit more, the route running, the getting off jams at the line of scrimmage and ultimately the reel the ball in and, I know that's asking a lot. I do think he is capable of it, but we didn't really get a chance to see it really consistently in Ann Arbor. Isaiah, you did see, though, his capabilities as a punt returner. I looked at the numbers, 89 punt returns over three years, a lot of volume there, and he returned to for a score. How much of an asset do you think that is? How much do you think maybe that'll help his stock, considering he can contribute on special teams? Oh, I mean, it's definitely huge because he does have the speed, the change of direction, just everything that you're looking at had an extremely impressive uh, jump at the combine. It was no surprise to anybody that he, uh, out here at least, that he ended up having the, the, the top, uh, the, the highest jump in that, the, I believe it was 49.5 inches. That was, you know, the highest in years in the NFL combine. I don't that none of that is a surprise, and I think that you see that a little bit more in punt return. There's still the same kind of similar situations. He seemed to get a lot better uh, as the, the years went by, uh, but uh, there, there were definitely some diagnosing it, uh, issues sometimes where he would uh, where, where, where he would let a ball go by him when he probably should have taken it, or vice versa. But I mean, again, these are the things that he does wrong are things that can be taught. And I know when you get to the NFL, you're not, you're, you're not looking to really teach guys as much, but you also can't teach athletic ability. And I think he'll instantly be in the upper tier athletically of any he goes to. So he, he would definitely be a guy that I would look at in, like, the fourth round. Uh, I, again, I think he probably should have stayed another year, really honed his skills. He, he really seemed uh, apt to really want to go in this draft. But whoever whoever gets him, they're just going to have to really be patient to to teach him the things that he needs to know because he can do all those things. Like I said, his best football is ahead of him. I think he'll eventually turn into a really really great pro. Uh, but he's got to be able to uh, to go to some place that's going to not give up on him right away. All right, last individual player. I ask you about Josh Medalist, the safety. Are we looking at a single high guy, a two deep guy, a box guy? Where do you see his role in the pros? Um, I think he's he's a pretty versatile guy. Uh, I, I definitely see. Uh, I, I definitely would. Uh, let, let me just put it this way: I, I wouldn't necessarily put him in coverage uh, as a safety. That's not necessarily a, a knock on him, uh, but. He, He's gotten burned a few times uh, as far as that's concerned, but Josh Metellus might be the one out of all of these guys that we're talking about that has outperformed his ranking coming in in spades. I think he 
he's really shown that he is more than a serviceable safety. He, I think he's very dependable. Uh, you don't have to really worry about many mistakes. He, he's made some, but again, this was a guy that people weren't really anticipating was going to be a starter. He was one of the lowest on the totem pole when he came in as a 2016 recruit. Uh, they had this really heralded class. I think it was rated number five in the country at the time of the uh, signing before some transfers and you know some of the people left there. But he was he was near the bottom of it and ended up being a starter in year two. He, um, I, I don't know enough about safety mechanics to re- to really give you re- like a, a perfect breakdown on on what his capabilities are. But I, I will say that. He became a staunch playmaker and a guy that didn't shy away from being in the bright lights as the years went on. Uh, sometimes he did find himself in some mismatches. Michigan tends to put a lot of the onus on the safeties as nickelbacks, which sometimes is, you know, really hurt him. But I, I, if you have him back as a sing, as a single high, uh, it, instead of having him up against the line of scrimmage and asking him to play man coverage and run with a guy. I think that that's probably a little bit better, uh, but he is definitely he can, he can play both positions as far as free safety or strong safety. Uh, it, it's just a, a matter of I think someone recognizing, looking at what his what he's been able to do well thus far, and strictly putting him in those positions. Uh, I don't know that how much higher his ceiling goes, but I definitely think he he's a, a guy that. Uh, should be drafted and will definitely get a chance uh, and definitely could be a, a boon on special teams as well. Isaiah, before we let you go, Michigan certainly has a lot of depth in terms of this class. Is there anyone that we didn't mention that jumps out to you or you think perhaps could make noise in the NFL regardless of the position? Oh, definitely. The, the one that doesn't get talked about literally at all, I have not seen him on any mock draft. Uh, I haven't seen any mention of him whatsoever, and a lot of it is because he was not, inexplicably, he was not invited to the NFL Combine as Mike Dana. He was, Pro Football Focus had him as one of the top defensive ends before he transferred from Central Michigan. He had a, a bit more of a limited role at Michigan. Uh, so, same time, he quite, didn't get quite the exposure you would think because he was playing behind uh, Aiden Hutchinson and Quiddy Pay, but... He's the guy that even probably more so than Donovan Peoples-Jones, once he came to campus, the players were marveling at what an athletic freak he was, just big and strong and fast. And he was really, really banking on having that pro day, and pro day got canceled because of coronavirus literally the day beforehand. But he he's the type of guy that I have no doubt that once he gets to the NFL, if NFL, you know, I'm sure he'll get to be an undrafted free agent if not uh, drafted late. He's one of those guys that very similar to Michael Onwenu. I would be surprised if he doesn't have a multi-year NFL career because he's got speed, he's got burst, he really confuses guys up front. Uh, really shows uh, perf- like really great mechanics. It kind of just a perfect defensive end when you look at it. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that literally gets no run whatsoever. But again, wasn't wasn't at the Senior Bowl, didn't have a pro day. Uh, didn't get to go to the combine, so had a lot working against him. So the hype train on Mike Dana hasn't really uh, taken off. But uh, if uh, if NFL scouts have gotten a chance to take a look at him, uh, I'd have no doubt that uh, he would end up being one of the one of the guys that gets selected.
Isaiah, great stuff, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Hopefully we'll have a college and NFL season to talk about in the fall. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Isaiah. Certainly hope so. Of course. My pleasure. Isaiah Hole, he's the publisher of the Wolverines Wire, part of that USA Today network. We thank him for joining us. Lance, excellent show. And we're closing in here just over a week away from the NFL draft. Yeah, it is coming up fast and furious, as I like to say. And that's good news because we're going to have some answers to what the Giants roster is going to look like. We're going to be able to tell what needs and what holes perhaps they address. And uh, this should be a very exciting time also because it's going to give us something to talk about and take our minds off of, which obviously is the goal for just about anybody at this point. Absolutely. We look forward to it. Stay tuned to Giants.com for all the coverage and our other podcasts as well. We'll be launching, if it's not up already, it should be shortly the first half of our reporters mock draft where, Lance, I've managed to track down a beat reporter for every NFL team and they're all making their picks through 36. It is maybe the biggest pain in the rear end of anything (laughs) I've ever had to do. But It sounds like it. But we're getting there and the first half of that will get put up um, shortly. I'm through pick 21 at this point, so I got about 15 to go before I get the Giants at 36. We're having Paul Schwartz pick uh, the Giants selection. So it's not one of us. It's, it's someone that's uh, a little bit different. Uh, a new Giants rewind with Carl Banks should be coming. And, of course, we'll continue to be doing Big Blue Kickoff Lives uh, through the draft. Uh, we're hoping to be able to do something live Friday and Saturday. We'll see if it works out technologically, and we'll see how that goes. Otherwise, we'll be back with you every day next week, Monday through Friday, of course, in the afternoon, uh, knocking out new Big Blue Kickoffs, previewing then reviewing everything the Giants do in the draft. Lance, we look forward to hearing you on those shows. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Look forward to it. For Lance Benno, I'm John Schmoke. We'll see you on the next edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, which you can find on the Giants mobile app, all your favorite podcast platforms, out on Giants.com slash podcasts. Adios.